This episode of Juice Crew Radio is brought to you by TriBest, making healthy living easy. Well, welcome. Welcome to Juice Guru Radio. Discover what the magic and power of juicing can do for you. And now, your host, best-selling author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Juice Fasting, Steve Prusak. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Juice Guru Radio. I'm your host, Steve Prusak. On today's show, we've got Jill Henderson. She's the author of the new book, The Garden Seed Saving Guide, Easy Heirloom Seeds for the Home Gardener, Artist, Backwoods Herbalist. We're going to find out why seed saving is viable for a healthy future right after this with Jill Henderson. So sit back, relax, have a juice, some tea, some water. We'll be back right after this with Jill Henderson. Juice Guru Radio. Well, hello and welcome. Welcome back to Juice Crew Radio. I'm your host, Steve, and we've got Jill Henderson here. Again, I said she's the author of The Garden Seed Saving Guide, but her, her other book, she's got uh, The Healing, Healing Power of Kitchen Herbs and A Journey of Seasons. She's right here on the show to show us seed saving for a healthy future and more. Jill, welcome to Juice Crew Radio. Thank you for having me, Steve. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, now we can turn off the uh, announcer voice and get real. But thank you, thank you. I'm really excited about your message and the book you've got, what you're offering to the world right now. So let's talk a little about how you came to writing this book and why it's so important to start saving our seeds. Well, I mean, I guess I, I started writing this book because I'm a gardener and I've been a gardener all my life. And, um, you know, just one day it just sort of dawned on me that maybe I should just save my own seeds because seeds are kind of expensive and I was young and didn't have a whole lot of disposable income. So I thought, well, I'll just go out and I'll grab that pepper. I'll grab that tomato and I'll plant the seeds, you know, how hard can it be? So, um, but I have to tell you, I, the, what really drove me to learn about saving seeds was the first year I did that, I, I had these beautiful bell peppers and I planted the seeds the, the following year and I got really beautiful bell peppers again, but when we went to go cut them up and eat them, they were hot bell peppers. And they weren't sweet they, and mild like a bell pepper should be. They were hot and spicy. And they looked like a bell pepper, but they tasted like a jalapeno, which was the other pepper that I was growing in my garden. And uh, not that it was a bad thing. As a matter of fact, we continued to grow what I called, I, we called them halibels because we sort of, you know, started our own new variety there. But it wasn't really what I was waiting for all summer long. And I told myself, Jill, you know, if you're going to start saving seed, you better learn how to do it right. Because you only get one chance each year. And if you mess up, then, you know, next year you're going to wait all summer long and get something that you really didn't want in the end. So I started learning everything I could about saving seeds. And it, and it just became fascinating as an herbalist and somebody who was already into nature and as an amateur botanist. Um, it, it, it was sort of just another part of my nature to want to learn more about it. So I dove into it, and over the years, I started swapping seeds with people online, and this is when the internet was real new, and I started talking to other people about saving seeds, and it just, it just escalated from there, and eventually, I began giving, giving workshops and um, talks about how to save seed um, in my local area, and then I had a seed bank, a local seed bank here in the Ozarks asked me to write a, a sort of a starter guide to saving seed for, you know, the people that... Uh, wanted to do that with their seed bank and um, and it inspired me I'd already written my book about herbs and I thought you know this is a great opportunity I'm just going to go ahead and write a beginner's seed saving guide 
um, at that time, there was only one really um, deeply intricate book on seed saving on the market. And I thought, Ooh, that's quite a, you know, it's like a dictionary. It's so intense. And most people didn't, didn't want to delve into it that deeply. So I decided to write a beginner's guide and you can learn everything that you need to know in this guide within 60 pages. So it's super easy. And I just made it easy for people who want to begin saving seeds right now. And maybe some who are already saving seeds, they can learn something new to help sort of enhance their seed saving skills and move on to another level. So for those of us new to gardening and the whole idea of seed saving, let's rewind it and really define what is seed saving? Well, seed saving, I mean, it is exactly what it sounds like. You're saving seeds from garden crops. And once you start saving seeds from your garden crops, you can save seed from all kinds of things, you know, flowers, ornamentals, fruit trees, even if you want to, which is a little more challenging, but you can do it. And, um, but so, you know, essentially there's, there's a handful of things that you really need to know to save seed. And, um, and we can, we can go over that, you know, kind of as it sort of directs us to, but uh, you know, it's not that it's not that difficult. And that's what I set out to prove in this guide is that it's really quite simple once you know a few of the basic facts. And I think a lot of people have an interest in saving seed. But as you asked me a minute ago, why people should save seed, I think is a really great question, because a lot of people are on the fence. They're not sure why should I save seeds? I can go get all the seeds I want at the store. So I would have to tell people that there there are like five really good reasons that you should save seed, that you should start saving seed right now, that you should take it seriously and learn a little bit more about it. And the first is like me, um, I wanted to save money. Seeds are not cheap, um, especially if you have a big garden. So I probably grow 30 to 40 different varieties of crops in my garden every year. And I don't even have a huge garden. So if I want to grow organic seeds, and I do, um, I am going to pay about $3 to $3.25 for a packet of seed. And that starts to add up when you're growing 30 different kinds of, you know. So let's say you grow five different kinds of lettuce. So three times five, you know, is 15 bucks just for lettuce. So, you know, there's, there's so saving money is, is the number one reason that most people give for, for saving seeds. The other thing is, uh, it's really important to know where your seeds come from. Now, you're out on the West Coast, right? And actually, I was born and raised in Orange County, so um, I, I know a little bit about California. And, um, but most of the seeds that we get commercially are grown on the West Coast or the very farthest East Coast, um, like in Maine and, and Vermont and places like that. That's because of the, the, the climate is conducive for saving seeds in those areas. So... But you kind of want to know where your seeds come from because you don't know if they're going to be spraying something on it. Unless you're buying organic, they might put a fungicide on it. Um, They might put neonicotinoids on your seeds now, which are endemic. And once they get in your soil, they're going to remain in your soil for the rest of your life. Um, That's a whole nother topic. But you also just kind of want to know where they're grown and how they're grown. So if you grow them in your own garden, you know all that already. So knowing where your seed comes from is pretty crucial. And related to that is basically um, when you grow seeds in your own garden, they're going to, they have a memory. Seeds have a memory. So they're going to, they're going to remember where they grew last year and the year before and the year before, and then they become adapted to your very specific climate. So here in the Ozarks, we have all four seasons, spring, summer, fall, winter. It's, it can get very cold in the winter. We can have late spring frosts. We can get 
early fall frost. It's hot and humid, and we often get periodic drought in the summer. So the seeds in my garden are going to be adapted to my climate. If you grow them in your garden, they'll be more adapted to the climate that you're growing them in. So they'll be more resilient. They'll be tougher and, you know, better able to withstand the weather conditions where you live. So that's another reason. Um, I guess the next reason would be, I, you know, all the rage right now is heirloom seeds, and for a good reason. And if you want to preserve an heirloom or any open pollinated seed, um, then you're going to need to grow it out and preserve it yourself, especially if it's very rare. Um, I know here in the Ozarks, we have a lot of locally adapted um, heirloom seeds. They, were, they originated here. And um, even with indigenous cultures, Native Americans have seeds that they've passed down for hundreds of years. And so say your family came from Germany or Poland or Russia or, you know, any number of places that uh, we Americans have come from over the last few hundred years. And you have this great heirloom variety from your grandma or something. And so saving your own seed will help preserve that variety. So we can help preserve these old heirloom varieties by, by growing them out and saving them ourselves. And haven't they said those are more nutrient rich and like when we talk about like hybridization of seeds, like carrots, they become more rich in sugar, more potent well, in sugar? Yeah, I, I think when you're talking about bricks levels, that has a lot to do with your soil and how you grow, the, your, how you grow your vegetables. Um, but that also can become part of the seed's memory as well, you know. So if you're growing a high bricks crop that has a lot of extra nutrition in it, um, you're going to pass those genes on in every generation that you grow. So just just remember that seeds are living things and they have memory and they remember where they came from and they remember how they grew and their parents pass on genes to them just like your parents passed on genes to you. So they can do those, they can do those miraculous things that sometimes we can't always do. Interesting. And wait, did we hit all five there? That was... Oh, well, no, I guess the other one I was going to say is, you know, um, we were just talking before the show about all the natural disasters we've had in this country this year. We had a severe flood that wiped out several towns right here in the Ozarks where we live this spring. It was just horrible. It was a century flood. Um, We're still reeling from it. Um, And then we had all those fires out west. I lived in Montana for 10 years. All those places that I lived are all burned up, thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of acres now in Sonoma and Anaheim. You guys are dealing with fires all over the place. We had Hurricane Harvey, Hurricane Irma that just devastated the South um, and on the entire Caribbean, Puerto Rico. And so when you're talking about preppers and preparing for disasters, seeds seeds are an incredible resource. Um, You can keep them for long periods of time. And if everything works out, you know, you can plant them immediately. And let's say you have a flood, as soon as the waters recede, you can plant them if the weather's conducive. If the weather's not conducive, you could probably grow them indoors. If it's cold, maybe you could grow lettuce or broccoli or carrots or something like that. So, you know, when we think about disasters and being prepared for disasters, seeds are invaluable and they take up very little space, easy to carry around. When you say a long time, how long do they typically last? Well, it depends. You know, I mean, um, some seeds like onions that you really, they don't, they don't like to be kept for more than about a year. But the good mm-hmm. thing about onions is you can just harvest them and put them right in the ground and they'll grow when the time is right for them. Um, but other seeds, you know, you can keep them five or six years just on an average basis with no real special, you know, preparations. But if you put them in the freezer, 
Um, do you dry them out properly? Check your moisture levels before you put them in the freezer. You encase them in plastic or glass. Um, they can last for a decade or more. Um, and then, of course, you've probably heard of, like, the seed vaults. We have all these doomsday, doomsday seed vaults around the world now, and those seeds are cryogenically frozen, and they stay well below freezing, and they can be kept for probably 50 to 100 years. Well, I haven't heard of the seed vaults, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah, there's, there's some very, very large seed vaults that are spread across the globe that were started in the last – decade or two in the event of a world catastrophe so that you know a lot of the seeds are put in there by research institutions universities private entities private corporations countries even um, to ensure that they can put these seeds somewhere safe in case there's a global disaster a drought fire whatever you want to you know can any kind of scenario you can imagine that they can go back and they can open up that vault and retrieve their seeds. And primarily most of them are food crops. So, Wow. That's really smart. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the different kinds of seeds. You talked about heirloom. Uh, I know you mentioned in your book about open pollinated seeds, hybrid and uh, genetically modified seeds. Everyone needs to have awareness about all this stuff. So can we talk more about that? Sure. Yeah. I think it's really important that people understand what they're, what they're getting when they buy seed or when they save seed. So open pollinated is a term that flies around a lot in the seed community and you'll hear it um, often. You'll see it in my book over and over when you're talking about, you know, general uh, gardening terms, you know, like in the garden, what happens between plants and the pollination in the fertilization process, open pollination simply means that they're free to pollinate amongst themselves within their species as nature intended. So that's an open pollinated plant. When we talk about open pollinated in the terms of seed saving, generally we're referring to some sort of a seed that is not a hybrid or a GMO. So in that instance, um, now open pollinated is kind of where you want to go really when you're saving seeds because they're natural. It's, it's the way nature made them. It's the way God intended them to be. Um, and heirlooms are just old varieties of open pollinated seeds. So they're still open pollinated. They're just an old variety. They usually about 50 years they've been around. Um, now there's, you have hybrid seeds and hybrids are also they're relatively natural, although there are some that are man-made, but they're man-made in a physical way. So, for example, if you have, um, you know, a California Wonder Bell, Wonder Bell Pepper and a Big Boy Bell Pepper, you know, both open-pollinated varieties, they might take a little tiny bit of pollen from the stigma of one and put it on the anther of the other. There's a very complicated process, but it is still a natural process in terms of you're not crossing outside of the species. But the problem with hybrids is that when you save their seed, like say you buy hybrid seeds in the grocery store, they are not going to come true when you plant them 99.9% .9 of the time. So if you plant a hybrid seed and it'll say so on the packet, by law, it has to say it's a hybrid. So it'll either say hybrid or F1, which means the first generation after a, a cross. Um, you, a hybrid is made up of two separate varieties or maybe even more varieties that are crossed intentionally. But when it happens in the garden, like my halibut, which is an accidental cross, um, I got lucky and those seeds came true and I got, a, I got the same halibut, the hot 
bell pepper that crossed with my jalapenos, that kept coming true. And, and I had a stable variety very quickly, but generally you don't have that. If you plant the seeds you save from a hybrid, you don't know what's going to come out on the other end. So, you know, if you save, uh, if you have a couple of different varieties of squash in your garden and you save the seeds from them, but don't take any steps to prevent them from cross pollinating one another, they're not going to look like the parent plants. So you'll have that, you'll have that same problem I had with my halibels when I was expecting nice, sweet, luscious bell peppers. And what I got were hot bell peppers and they were good, but that's not what I waited all summer for. So you have to be a little bit careful about saving hybrid seeds. And then the last one is the GMOs. Now genetically modified organisms. Sometimes they're called GMFs or genetically modified foods. And these are wholly unnatural. They are made in a laboratory and they are genetically modified um, using viruses as a vector to force one species to accept the genes from unrelated species. Now, let's take sugar beets or rice or we have canola oil, rapeseed. Um, there's, there's lots of genetically modified food crops out there today and they're getting the list is getting larger all the time but you can say that in the laboratory scientists sat down and they literally spliced the genes of one species into another now sometimes those species might be related as in let's say rice and i'm not going to say that's true for all rice but they lots of times basically they're they're splicing the dna of things like mold fungi, insects, um, rats, uh, rodents, human beings even. And so if you, for example, they, they actually have a rice that is spliced with human genes and they're intending to use this rice to make medicine. And I put that in quotation marks. So when you eat a genetically modified organism, you, you have no idea what's in it. And in order to make those unrelated genes cooperate and splice, you know, to actually have that unrelated species accept that DNA, they have to use something like a virus um, in order to confuse the host, the host DNA and basically cause an inflammatory response. And so, you know, I, I, you cannot save GMO seeds because it's illegal, there's patents, but really you don't want to anyway. Oh, there's a reason they call it Franken food. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. really, um, and, and it's funny, as scientific as it sounds, often when they're doing this, it is like being a mad scientist. They have no idea what the long-term repercussions are of introducing this food to the, um, to the food supply and what that's going to mean for generations to come. They, they really have done zero studies on what this means when we combine these, how we can't play God. That's right. And, and um, it, it is a big concern for those of us who are not big fans of GMOs, because first of all, we have a lot of scientific research that has been done. The World Health Organization and many others, very well-respected scientists who have come back and shown us time and time again that genetically modified foods are unhealthy and 
cause problems within the human and animal body. I know I write for a magazine called Acres USA and it's an eco agricultural magazine. And I hear over and over again, farmers who say they'll offer their livestock GMO corn and organic corn, and they will eat the organic corn and leave the GMO sit there until they're nearly starving to death because they sense there's something wrong with it. So, you know, I, I mean, I don't want anybody coming down and, you know, trying to come and take my farm away from me, but GMOs act like regular crops out in the field. So when you have Roundup Ready corn, for example, you can't grow organic corn around it. It's impossible. Ask Jerry um, Gettle from Baker Creek Heirloom Seed. He lives right up the road here from me. And their seed company has taken off. They're in Petaluma, California and uh, now. And he can hardly find organic corn seed because the pollen from corn will go over and contaminate the organic corn. Now, if a farmer is found with any trace of GMO genes in their organic corn, well, they can be sued by the company that has the patent on that GMO. So, you know, once you open Pandora's and, and, and they have been. What's that? And they have been. There have yes, been cases. Have. Yes, they have. Yes, they have. There have been many, many farmers who have been sued, persecuted. They've had their farms taken from them, their livelihoods. Every, in every cent in their bank is gone. And this has gone on for decades now. And so, you know, if you're growing, if you're trying to grow organic, um, you have to be really careful. You're not around a bunch of GMO crops because, you know, you, can, you could go to jail for it. Because of, of the cross-pollination. That's right. And that's cross-pollination, you see. So, I mean, the, the thing is, is that even though I believe that GMOs are wholly unnatural, they do still have the same abilities as other plants. In other words, they can send out pollen and be pollinated by insects and have pollen fly through the air and pollinate um, non-GMO crops. And oftentimes they do more vigorously than their non-GMO counterparts. Now, there's also, um, I know the same company that's making a lot of these GMOs are also creating suicide seeds, where, so you can't save your seeds. What's going on with that? And can you talk, do you, are you, you're familiar, I'm sure, with that, right? Yeah, I am. They, they, I don't know what they call them now, but they, they used to call them the um, uh, Terminator gene. Yes. And, and that gene, that, that ability is still very, very viable. And the last I heard which was maybe a couple of years ago, um, Monsanto promised that they would not use that gene in their genetic, in their GM technology, um, but that they reserve the right to use it in the future. And basically what the Terminator gene does is, well, it can do one of several things. There, there are a couple different varieties of this gene from what I understand. One is that the seeds will not germinate, seeds that are produced with this technology will not germinate unless they're sprayed with a very specific chemical, of course, which the patenting company would hold the rights to, much like Roundup. And the people that bought that seed would have to use this technology in order to activate the germination process in the seed. So if you got a hold of it and didn't have this chemical to spray on it, then it wouldn't, the seeds would never germinate, okay? So that's one way of protecting their patent on these types of seeds. And then the other is that basically that it just kills out. So you can grow the seed one time and then it has no reproduction capabilities afterwards. So basically all the seed that is produced by plants grown from the original are sterile and they will not produce uh, a plant after that. So there's, there's those two types that I'm aware of. And uh, at this time, 
Monsanto in particular has said that they will not release that, that technology. They will not utilize it. Um, but we're just sitting around with our fingers crossed, hoping that that's true. Well, that, that's good news for a change. I didn't hear that. That, that actually makes me feel a little better about that one part. Yeah. And I mean, it's been a couple of years since I heard them say that, but you know, that it's been, so who knows now, you know, we're, we're the, the GMO technology and the, and the number of crops that are being released, um, genetically modified crops that are being released uh, are staggering. It's, it's going up exponentially year after year. So we're facing now where they've got all the primary crops like wheat, corn, rice, sugar beets, um, you know, on and on. We could, we could keep going. So it's um, something to be aware of because when we talk about juicing, we always do recommend organic, you know, because of there's more nutrients when we're avoiding the GMOs and the pesticide. Let's talk a little about that because some seeds actually have the pesticide built right into it. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. Those are the neonicotinoids. And this is a very controversial um, agent, and, uh, and it's being used a lot on uh, – you see that a lot – or you have to ask about it because they're not advertising it. But you find it a lot on perennial ornamentals that you buy at, like, say, I think Lowe's actually said they're not going to sell those anymore um, because they believe they're killing the, – the, the neonicotinoids are killing bees and butterflies and other pollinators. Um, but basically, it, neonicotinoid is exactly what it sounds like. It's a chemical derived from nicotine and tobacco, but it's been synthesized. And what they do is they, they put this on, or on the plant or in the soil around the plant, and, it's supposed, and, it, and it is um, systemic. In other words, the plants absorb it into their leaves, into the veins of the plants, the, the, the whole you know, living system of the plant, and it remains in the plant for its entire life, and it does not degrade. It doesn't degrade in the plant or the vegetables or anything that's grown in it. And if it's in the soil, like say you buy a pepper plant and it had it in the, in the soil, and you put that soil in your garden, it doesn't degrade in your soil either. So anything grown in that soil will be contaminated with neonicotinoids, as far as I know, perpetually. And um, I know that there's a lot of bee advocates and a lot of concert, um, conservation groups that are fighting to have this taken off the FDA's approved um, list. And because it is killing, um, we're, we know it's killing bees and not just bees, but anything that um, eats nectar or pollen off of flowers and plants. Just another thing to be aware of. So um, this is obviously something we should all be doing and learning more about um, to protect, you know, the future of, of life on the planet. Uh, is it hard to save seeds? I mean, can any of us do it? Yeah, everybody can do it. And that's what I set out to prove in my book is that, you know, it's 60 pages long. And that includes, you know, all the front matter and all the back matter and not just the heart of the book. So I'd say within 50 pages, I'm showing you how you can save seed right now, starting right this very minute. I don't care what the weather's like where you are. You can start saving seed right now. It's so easy. And this book focuses primarily on those seeds that are easiest to save. And those would be basically all your nightshade family, which are peppers, tomatoes, eggplants, like that. Um, anything in the legume family, your beans, your peas, anything in snap peas, snow peas, you know, any kind of bean, dry bean, um, mung beans, any kind of beans, any kind of peas, um, okra, lettuce, 
um, your annual radishes, which are your breakfast radishes, not like the daikons and the, the uh, winter radishes, but your spring radishes, the little round ones. Um, you can also grow, um, and with a little more information and a little bit more practice, you can save seeds from all of your melons, your squash, your cucumbers, um, gourds. You can save um, okra, spinach. So there's a whole lot of seeds you can save, and those are just types. Those aren't even varieties. So that's hundreds of varieties of things that you can grow in your garden right now without a whole lot of extra information. The hardest ones to save are, are the biennial plants. Those are things like the brassicas, kale, kohlrabi, you know, broccoli, cauliflower, and a few others. And the reason that those are difficult is because there's so many that can cross-pollinate. They have very specific requirements to protect the cross-pollination so you keep your, your seeds true. But just to start out with, um, all those plants that I just, all those different types of crops that I just mentioned, you can start saving right now. Well, what are some of the uh, pitfalls, the obstacles that we might encounter if we, you know, start saving our seeds? Well, I, I think um, some of the most important ones are, I, I, these are the problems that, I, that most people encounter. And one is, um, if you're saving your own seeds and they don't germinate. I hear this a lot from people who started without really doing a whole lot of homework and learning how to save seed. And this is why it's important to do a little bit of basic um, educating yourself, you know, about, you know, the, just the, the, the basics of saving seed. You'll prevent a lot of these problems. And the very first one that people have who just save their seeds willy nilly is that the seeds don't germinate and the seeds that they save don't germinate. And there's a couple of reasons for that. And one of them is that they didn't save seed from enough fruits. You know, a lot of plants, they need, they have a lot of genetic diversity built into them and they need a lot of genetic diversity as they grow. So they need a bunch of like plants in the garden to mix up their gene pool. You know what I mean? So it's like breeding dogs. If you breed a sibling to a sibling over and over and over again, you're going to come up with a dog that's got all kinds of health problems, right? So it's the same thing with plants. If you don't save seed from enough fruits of different plants, so then you're going to run into a genetic roadblock because plants need genetic diversity to be healthy. So if let's take something like squash, for example, you know, you want to save one squash from five or six of the same kind of plants in your garden, not just one. If you don't, if you do that, if you just save that one fruit from one plant, you're going to wind up having problems like poor or reduced germination or no germination at all. And then the other problem that people have is that they don't, on the germination front, is they don't wait until their fruit is botanically mature. So, like, we'll take peppers again. You know, everybody likes green peppers, and not everybody wants to wait long enough for the peppers to turn red. But a pepper isn't really, truly, botanically ripe until it's red, right? So it needs to be red, and it needs to be a little bit soft, and maybe a little bit beyond the eating stage, so, you know, like the one you find in the fridge, it's all kind of, it feels a little squishy and soft and you go, yuck. Uh, well, that's kind of when it's really ripe. I mean, botanically speaking, so that's when the seeds inside are ripe. So learning when the fruit that you're growing is actually botanically mature, that will help you with a lot of the problems that you have when you save seeds. When cucumbers too, for example, nobody wants to eat a ripe cucumber. They're giant. When they get ripe, they're big, they're yellow, they're ugly, and they don't really taste very good. They have big fat seeds in them. But if you're saving seeds, you need to let them, you need to let a few get that big 
in order to have viable seed. So that's, that's one of the big problems that, that people have when they're saving seed for the first time. So when you harvest your crops, you're putting, you know, you're eating a certain amount and then you put aside the, uh, a certain amount to ripen fully and then save the seeds from that. Is that how you do it? Yeah. Yeah. So if, if you take a crop like cucumber, for example, where we, we eat the fruit ourselves, it's table ready, ready when it's immature. We like a nice young cucumber because the seeds are very tiny inside. The flesh is sweet and crisp, but a ripe cucumber gets like, you know, this big, it gets really big. It's really um, uh, unappetizing. But if you'll let one cucumber on each of the plants that you grow ripen. So I usually grow and I have more cucumbers than I can stand. I usually grow about eight cucumber plants because I want a lot of cucumbers real fast for pickles and stuff. So on those eight plants, I will let one cucumber from each plant get big and yellow and ripe and soft. You leave it on the plant until it's botanically mature. And once it's botanically mature, then you cut it open and and scoop the seeds out. And you'll know when they're ripe because they're fat and plump. And you can, visually you can tell. Now some fruits are really easy like tomatoes and watermelons, you know, we eat those when they're botanically mature. When they're at their sweetest, you eat a tomato when it's big and red and ripe the seeds inside are ripe. When you eat a watermelon, the fruit is botanically mature and so are the seeds. Um, Pumpkins and squash and things that, especially winter squash, those you can even put in storage and you just harvest the seeds when you're ready to eat them. But when you take a zucchini, for example, it's the same as a cucumber. You've got to let it get big and ugly and unedible on the plant before you can save the seeds. So as long as you allow one or two fruits to do that, then you're not going to have any problem. And that also goes back to your germination issues and, and other issues. Let the, learn when the fruit is ripe botanically and then learn how to allow it to ripen on the plant. And then you'll, you'll have no problems getting seeds that germinate true every time. Great. And those, those cucumbers are great for a base on our juices too, with a little bit of celery. I such actually a, like such the a great use. Ones. Yeah, the yeah. big ones, they're, they're, not as, um, they're not as crisp as, um, as a, a, an immature cucumber, but I actually like them, you know, because cucumbers are really melons. And so when you let those cucumbers get ripe, scoop the seeds out, peel the skin off, dice them up, they're delicious, actually. <laughs> At least the ones I grow, which are uh, the straight eights, they come out very nice. And, and while they don't taste quite like an immature cucumber, they're very nice and you could juice them. There's lots of good stuff in it that time. Interesting. I never thought of it that way, that they're immature cucumbers, the kind we're chopping up and putting in a salad is actually an immature cucumber. That's right. And so like say, take something like broccoli, for example, the heads that we eat, the green heads, those are actually flowers that are immature. And if you let that broccoli go, they would actually open up their flowers. You would see the flowers and then the seed head would be where the broccoli head is. So, so we eat a lot of our fruits and vegetables immature from the garden, but we have to learn when it is that they're actually botanically ripe in order to save seed from them. So that's pretty critical. And I was, I was going to tell you too, when we were talking about reasons for saving seed and disaster preparedness, one of the things that I had in mind to say to you was seeds, and it's also another good reason for saving seed in general, because seeds are alive inside of every seed is a little packet of nutrients that help get the seed off to a good start. You hear that all the time, you know, you can just throw a seed down and it'll just do what it does because 
It has everything it needs to grow, right? And put a lot of faith in our seed. But they have these nutritional packets inside of them that help the seeds grow without any, like, nutrients for the first, you know, few weeks of their lives. So the seeds you save, you can sprout them. Within three to five days, you can have microgreens. You can uh, eat them raw. You can juice them. Um, you take these people in Puerto Rico, for example, if they had mung beans and um, broccoli seed that were organic, they could be sprouting and having fresh organic greens in three to five days. So yeah, some- and those microgreens are so nutrient rich. I love the taste of them. They are. They're fabulous. And they all have their own flavor, radishes, broccoli, cauliflower. I mean, you name it, kale, beans, peas. I mean, you name it. You can sprout just any kind of seed. And, and the little, because they're so packed full of nutrition for themselves to grow, they're packed full of nutrition for our bodies as well. So, so they're preparedness food. They're an emergency food. And they're a great superfood that you can use raw you can juice you can stir fry you can sprinkle them on things i love sprouts i've got some mung beans going right now yeah and another thing is i grow them all the time it's really easy to grow no matter where you live uh year round so there's no excuse not to get gardening and saving your seeds and doing all this absolutely you're listening to Jill Henderson here on Juice Crew Radio. She's the author of the new book, The Garden Seed Saving Guide. Now, that's available on Amazon and bookstores worldwide. Is that right, Jill? Yeah, you should be able to find it in multiple countries and on Amazon for sure and in Kindle and in print. And you can find Jill on the internet at www.showmeoz.wordpress.com. We'll have a link to that up at juicegrewradio.com. And before we close out, I wanted to ask you, because one of your other books is about the healing power of kitchen herbs. And we're always talking about juicing and how we can add some herbs to our juice, like cilantro and some of these other ones, dandelion greens, things like that. Can you talk a little about the healing power of kitchen herbs and how, you know, everyone could benefit from using more herbs and growing them in the kitchen? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the reason I wrote that book was because I love, I love, I was like I told you before, I was an amateur botanist and a wild food enthusiast. I've been studying wild edible medicinal plants for years. And I thought to write a book about that. But then I, I was sitting outside one afternoon, just, sitting, you know, trying to think of what I wanted to write. And I said, you know, look at all the, my herb garden was right in front of me. And I thought, these are the oldest herbs in the world. These are the oldest medicines in the world. Before they were used to season food, they were used to heal our bodies. So all the common kitchen herbs, sage, oregano, rosemary, thyme, ginger, garlic, all those herbs are so healing for our bodies. And all you have to do is use them in your food every day. And it's like medicine in your food. You turn your food into medicine. They heal and they give us lots of tons of nutrition, many vitamins and enzymes and micronutrients that we don't even think about. And, and literally, you can eat them fresh, you can eat them dried, and they preserve our food, they make our food taste great. And um, my book, The Healing Power Kitchen Herbs, talks all about how to grow them in your own garden, what to do with them after you grow them, how to use them, how they're used as medicine. And often it's just as simple as putting it in your food, using, it, using those fresh herbs to season your food. What are your top five? Oh, my top five. Well, garlic, of course, is um, garlic and ginger are two really, really important ones just in terms of medically, you know, using them for medicinal purposes, but also as sort of all-purpose seasonings. They're antibiotic, you know, they're antifungal, antimicrobial. 
Um, they cross the blood brain barrier. My brother had brain cancer and he passed away a couple years ago. And we used a lot of herbs in his juicing so that he could get the nutrition into his body and, um, herbs like, um, sage, um, rosemary. Those are very powerful, powerful herbs. Um, and then, you know, those are, that's four, but I could keep going because I love them all. It's hard to pick one, but those four are really very important herbs that, that anybody can grow and, uh, and use every day. Awesome information and so helpful to our audience. Jill, anything um, to say in closing, anything we didn't touch on or um, any new projects coming or anything else you wanted to share with our listeners or final words of advice? Oh, well, I, I, I can't think of anything. We, I mean, there's so much to talk about. We could do this all day. Um, I lo- and I love it. <laughs> Personally, I love it. This is definitely my passion, too. Thing. Yeah, it is. And, and what you're doing is great. And I, I think that saving seeds and the reason I, 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 I wanted to call this seed saving for a healthy future, this interview is because I do really believe that seed saving is our future. It's always been our future. And, and in order for us to protect ourselves against patents on food crops, you know, um, Vandana Shiva is one of my sheroes. Um, who she has just inspired me in so many ways. But the honest truth is that that by saving our own seed, we create biodiversity in our food crops around the world. We save money. We heal ourselves. We give ourselves free nutrition. And we empower ourselves and take back what is rightfully ours, which is the seed that grows from from the ground that nature and God gave us so that we can have nutrition and healing. And when you start saving your own seeds, you're gonna have more seeds than you know what to do with, and then you get to share that bounty with others. And so hopefully you'll learn how to save seeds and pass that on to someone else and we can keep this going. Jill Henderson doing amazing work, so much to share. So we'd love to have you back again. So thank you for all the work you're doing, Jill. Thank you, Steve. It was really nice to talk to you today. Awesome. And I'm Steve Prusak, and we'll see you on another episode of Juice Guru Radio. Thanks for being here. Thank you for listening to Juice Guru Radio. Find out more about us at juiceguru.com. Until next time, get your juice on.